0: So we're about halfway through the summer, right? It's A little depressing to think about. Some of you are coming back from vacation. Some of you are getting ready to go to vacation. Some of you are beach vacationers. Can I see those hands? Some of you are mountain and national park vacationers. Can I see those hands? All right, well, I'm looking forward to the beach. We haven't been yet, so those of you who are coming back, I'm kind of jealous of you, and I, I hope some of you are even on vacation at the beach and and tuning in from there, and we're extra jealous of you. Um, But can we all just take a second and recognize that the beach, in many ways, is just a glorious deliverer? Isn't it? Like, like I just look forward to the beach. And the mere thought of being at the beach, it delivers me from whatever feels like just pressing in front of me, like, oh, just be at the beach. You feel the water kind of lapping up and running through your toes, like, oh, that's awesome. I love that. And we know it can't really deliver us from anything, right? It's like, it's only a week away, and when I come back, I'm going to have more problems than what I left with. But just the thought of getting to the beach is awesome, like, oh, this is a deliverer. But, but there's also, if you've ever been at the beach when perhaps a, a hurricane comes or the threat of a tropical storm, there, there's judgment that comes at the beach, isn't there? And if you're stuck at the beach when that judgment comes, you'd better get out of there. Like, it's no laughing matter. It's a matter of life and death. And it's only a fool who says, oh, I'm just gonna hunker down in my beach cottage here and pretend like this thing isn't coming. I'll make it, it'll pass by. Like, no, you need to, you need to get out of Dodge and appropriately deal with the, the judgment that's coming on this beach, right? And, and in a somewhat similar, although in a infinitely greater way, God is both a glorious deliverer and a glorious judge. And Acts 12 shows that to us, right? He he offers us, unlike the beach, he offers us a deliverance that's way better than seven days away from your problems, right? And like the judgment of the beach, if you don't recognize his power and the judgment that's coming for all of us, you too could risk losing your life. And so there's a a deliverance and a a judgment that's coming. So stated differently, if you underestimate the power of God's deliverance and of his judgment— it's only a matter of time until you're going to have a really, really big problem. Right? So, so Acts 12, boiled down to a sentence, might be something like this. A small view of God results in a big problem for churches on mission. You see it on screen there. A small view of God results in a big problem for churches on mission. That's why A.W. Tozer would say, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's the single most important thing about you. Maybe you realize that, maybe you don't. Maybe it feels like something a pastor says and nobody else really ever thinks about, but I'm telling you it's true. And I hope this morning to demonstrate from Acts 12 why that is so valuable for us. So Acts 12, three basic points. We'll see no small context, no small deliverance, no small judgment. No small context, no small deliverance, no small judgment. So no small context, Start there, that's the first point. Look at verses one through five. Let's read those again together. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You see, you might read Acts 12 as um, part of the Bible, which is just moral stories to kind of guide you along your way. And if you read it that way, you might see like, well, James died, he suffered, I, I really need to try to suffer well as a Christian. And the church stayed up all night praying for Peter, like, I need to pray longer than I've been praying And they clearly lacked faith that God would deliver, and so I need to pray with more expectant faith. And Herod was judged for not giving God the glory, and so I need to be extra quick, whenever I'm complimented, say, praise the Lord. And you read the Bible sometimes, and I do this too, as as a set of moral stories that's just meant to kind of guide us along the way. It's a basic way of reading the Bible as what we're supposed to do for God. But what if the Bible was one big story about God and what he's done for you? That's what the Bible actually is. How would that change the way we read this? And the answer is, it's found right in the text. We see no small context. Look at verse 3 specifically. We read uh, the the last sentence there, verse 3. This was during the days of unleavened bread. That's right after the Passover. The Passover meal is eaten. And then verse four, you scroll down, Herod was intending after the Passover to bring Peter out to the people. So so what we find here is this, this great deliverance of Peter that comes. And it's placed in the context where there are Jews gathering for the Passover. So you've got the Passover meal that's eaten and then about seven days of unleavened bread. And during that time, it's unlawful to put anybody to death. And this whole kind of period is just called The Passover. And so while Jews are gathering to remember the first Passover, the deliverance from Egypt, their minds are consumed with what God has done for them. This might be for us a bit like Easter. You're just kind of remembering resurrection power, resurrection hope. Your mind is all over these things. And in this context, God is going to deliver Peter and Judge Herod to remind his people, look, the same God who gets the glory for delivering his people from Egypt and for judging Egypt, he's the same God that will deliver Peter and he'll get the glory for delivering him. And he's the same God who will get the glory for judging Herod. And he's the same God who rules over the entire universe and says, I'll become a lowly human to save you, and I'll get the glory for it. You see, the context here gives us these clues that that in the midst of this deliverance of Peter, the the time in the calendar year is is huge. It's, It's reorienting their vision to say, This is a big view of God. It's not just a random happening that happens to get written down in Acts 12. Like, no, reorient your eyes and see the bigness of this God and his unfolding plan of redemption. And within his plan of redemption, we see right at the outset, there's suffering that's involved. James dies by the sword. We just read that a second ago. And notice, it, as, as the Israelites are thinking back to Egypt, they're remembering, this too was part of our deliverance. We suffered under the hands of wicked kings for years. In Acts 12, the suffering is not just for being the people of God as it was in Exodus and in Egypt. It's for actively living on mission and proclaiming the gospel. That's what James was in trouble for. And it's a lesson for all of us that living on mission will result in suffering. And it's not because of some cultural factor primarily. Like you might say, well, because of the rise of secularism and the woke mob, and you're going to get in trouble for being a Christian or somebody else might say, well, because of communism, it's this or it's that. I was like, No, no, no. It's because Satan hates gospel proclamation. That's what he hates. And he'll use any ideology that he needs to so that when you go out on mission, he's trying to shut you down. You know, it was interesting. The other night we were at the park and we met uh, a couple of Pakistani believers who've been here for a couple of years. And the, the woman's name was Saudia. And she was telling us to say, in Pakistan, I introduced myself and I say, my name is Saudia and I'm a full-time PhD student, and I'm a Christian. Like that, Culturally, you just introduce yourself, my name, a little bit about myself, and what I believe. So I, she said, I, I come to the States, and I introduce myself this way over and over, and I start to realize no one's responding in kind. This is a little bit weird. And, and I, I'm at IUPUI, she's working on her PhD, and she said, I had people come to me afterwards, and they whisper in my ear, hey, I'm a Christian too. And I think this is so strange. I lived in Pakistan, and I told people I was a Christian, and you guys are so crazy about freedom of speech, you love it here, and yet you won't use it and tell anybody. That's convicting, isn't it? Stated a little bit differently. Famous missionary to China, C.T. Studd, maybe 150 years ago. He said it this way. He said, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet long and loud for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure for the battlefield. Amen, I love that. Like, may that be our anthem. I'm gonna blow the trumpet loud and long for our Savior. And that Satan will be having to think, how can I fight this guy off? And I, how can I fight this woman off in the advance of the gospel? And that's where the suffering comes from. And oftentimes, we'll, we'll see suffering in our lives. None of us like it, I don't. And we object, and it's, it's something like, in our mind, we might not verbalize it this way, but the, the objection is something like, if I can't see a good enough reason for God to allow this particular suffering... And there must not be one. First, I don't know what suffering you might be facing this morning, and I don't intend in any way to minimize or to overlook that. What I do intend to say is that the God who is over the entire universe is bigger than even your suffering. And we're forced to confront that and ask, is my God big enough to allow suffering and still be just? Is he wise enough to be trusted through this suffering? Is he good enough to be trusted through this suffering? I, sometimes I think about it this way. It's like I, I would walk into the kitchen, and, and our girls are in the kitchen, and every single cabinet has been unloaded. You see, smoke coming out my ears. Like, what in the world is going on here? Like, do you know... but rewind that a bit. And what if I walk into the kitchen and Emily's there and she's got every single cabinet unloaded? No longer smoke billowing billowing out my ears. I'm like, oh, you must have a really good reason for this because she's bigger than my kids. She's wiser than my kids. What if in a a similar way, we see the suffering in our lives and we see God a bit like our kids and a bit less like our spouse who's got a good reason for what they're doing? You see, the context is critical in seeing the big view of God here. And it's not just that the context is in the midst of the Passover, reshaping our eyes. See, this is the, the God who delivered from Egypt and judged Egypt, who will deliver Peter and judge Herod, and promises to deliver or judge you one or the other. No, it's, it's bigger than that. Let's, let's zoom out just a touch for this context and see within the whole scope of Acts where we're at. right? So if we start to walk through, we start in Acts 1, the ascension, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes, the day of Pentecost, the gospel's being proclaimed, it's going out, the church begins to be established. Acts 6 and 7, you have deacons serving, there's persecution in Acts 8. Last couple weeks, Acts 9, 10, 11, the gospel's now going to Gentiles, it's expanding to the end of the earth. And you've got this unfolding plan of redemption. And then in Acts 13, you see the gospel then going to the ends of the earth. Like Acts 10 and 11, it's, it's now four Gentiles. And then 13 to 28, it goes from there. And here's how it goes out. So why is Acts 12 here? Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? Like theologically, Acts 11, here's where the gospel's for the Gentiles. Acts 13, here's where it goes out. What's Acts 12 doing here? It doesn't necessarily fit the whole flow, at least as I might read it initially. Well, I think the reason God has placed it here is it's like his final words before you go out and you be sent out on mission, like remember these final words of the bigness of your God who will both deliver and judge. And you get that clearly in your mind and then you can go take the gospel. The final words are that way, right? Like if you ask me, almost everything in life can come back to the movie Gladiator in one way or another. And what's the last thing that Maximus always says before he goes into battle? Strength and honor. If I remember, forget everything else in battle, strength and honor. Right? Or uh, what's the last thing your dad says to you before he gives you the keys as a teenager? Hey, be back by 11. Because nothing good happens after midnight. As long as you're back by 11, then we'll probably be okay. Or what do I tell my girls every single day when I drop them off before school? Be kind, obey, work hard. You be kind to your classmates, you work hard at your studies, and you obey your teacher. You do those three things; it'll probably be all right today. Like these final words are meant to carry you through the day. And so Acts twelve is placed here. The gospel's been unfolding, and you're about to go out. You better get a big size view of God in your mind, and not just a big size view of God, but of His glory. Verse seventeen. Why don't you look back at that with me? Verse seventeen. Peter's been delivered. Here's what he says. He says. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He says, give God the glory for the big things that are happening. That's a big view of God, a big view of his glory. And then you come down to verse 23. We read of Herod, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. God gets all the glory for the deliverance and for the judgment. And this is a theme you'll see all over the Bible. Isaiah 48, verse 11. Listen to how Isaiah would say it. It says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will have his glory. Or Isaiah 43, a couple chapters earlier, says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You're all made for God's glory. Or Revelation 4, we just sang about this just a couple of minutes ago in the song. It says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. It's as if God is saying, I'm glorified when people like James suffer unjustly for my sake. And I'm glorified when I deliver people like Peter miraculously for my sake. And I'm also glorified when I justly judge the kings of the earth like Herod. And far too often, guys, we don't operate with this big view of God. We have a wholly domesticated little view of God where He's like any number of things. Let me just list a few off. Like God is kind of like our friend up in the C-suite that we're hoping helps us get promoted. I need a promotion, phone a friend, got up in the C-suite, hey, give me that promotion. Or, or God is like a, I need healing. God is it's like a supercharged trial dog. Give, give me healing, God. Or it's like I don't do with my kids. God is it's like a parenting guru. He's a child whisperer. Hey, just help me get through this. He's a, he's a legendary life coach. Like, I don't know what to do here. The Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. Like, and, and God is like an easy button. That was easy. And whatever comes up, we're just like, well, I'm glad I've got a God for that. That was easy. And it's just over and over. Now, is there anything wrong with going to God and asking for his help in what's going on in your job or for healing or with your kids or with some situation? No, not at all. But he'd better be in your mind and in your prayer life a lot more than that, amen? He's the God of the universe, And for most people in the world, the message is really simple. Your God is too small. We need a bigger view of God. And I struggle to wrap my mind around this because he's the God who's made galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies, ones we haven't even discovered yet, and yet controls tiny subatomic particles that our most powerful microscopes can't see and understand, and yet somehow cares about us as well. I was Texting with Pastor Eddie this week, he he told me he went to the Great Basin National Park where there's almost zero light pollution at all. And there you can see a a night sky maybe a little bit like this one. It's absolutely glorious in person. You can sort of get a sniff of the idea right there. Scientists tell us that if you look at a perfectly clear night sky, no light pollution, no clouds, you can see about 9,000 stars. That's a lot. They also tell us that about three septillion stars exist. That many. On the best night, the most mind-blowing night of your life, just to go stargazing, you can see 9,000. And there are three septillion stars. And while we try to name them, and we've got cool names like Mars and Venus and Saturn and Betelgeuse for a couple, most of them, it's like SKR36451. Like, we can't even come up with names for these things. And you know what God says in Psalm 147? He says, I determine the number of the stars, and I give them all of their names. I call out to them like I call out to my children. Isaiah 40, 12, we read, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? We start to get this massive view of septillion upon septillions of stars and God's like, yeah, it just fits right about there. I wonder if you know somebody with a massive hand and you shake hands and it feels like you're swallowed up in it. For me, that's Eric Hampton. He's got massive bear paws. And I shake his hand, I swear half the time, I think my entire torso can fit in his hand. (laughs) Guys, can I just tell you that God holds the universe in his hand like Eric holds a tic-tac? It is no thing for him. We serve a big, big God. And a God that's big enough that can be entrusted with every single detail of our lives. And so we zoom this back into Acts 12 and getting a right view of God. And listen to how David Peterson would comment on this. He says, without explanation, one apostle is executed, but another is rescued, teaching the church to live with the mystery of God's providence and to rely afresh in each situation on the mercy and the continuing care of God. Friend, are you you living in view of the mercy and continuing care of God with every moment of every day. The same God who delivered his people from Egypt, delivered Peter from prison, and wants to deliver you as well. Here's where a small view of God hurts us. I said, small God, big problem. Small view of God results in a really big problem for churches on mission. A small view of God results in discouragement from suffering to the point that it it slows down or even stops our missional progress. We get discouraged by the things around us. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing He says, trust me, I've got you. I'm working. There's no small context for what's about to unfold. God is showing us, I am a big God. That brings us to our second point. There was no small deliverance. Verses 6 through 19. It might be easier for this part if, uh, if we just read from Peter's perspective, and I just kind of comment as we go through the passage. If you've got a um, copy of God's word, make sure you're looking here. Let's just read what happens. Starting in verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, pause a second. Remember, days of unleavened bread, seven days after the Passover meal. This is no secret that you can't kill people during this. So Peter understands, this is probably my last night on earth. This is not a secret. Right, he knows well what's going on. On that very night, continue verse six, Peter was sleeping. I don't know about you, but if it's my last night on earth, I don't know that I'd be sleeping. I might be nervous. I might be trying to scratch out letters to somebody that I knew. Maybe he didn't have that opportunity. I don't know. Maybe, I'd, maybe you think he'd be more faithful like Paul and Barnabas. He'd be singing in prison. But he's sleeping. Clearly this dude has trust, a high level of trust in a really big God that whether I die or I don't, he will be glorified. A bit like the Daniel's buddies in Daniel 3, says, hey, king, God can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, he's still on the throne. You see this big view of God evidenced in only like one verse in. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding guarding the prison. Sounds pretty secure to me. Two chains, two soldiers, sentries, ironclad doors, like probably not getting out of this one. And behold, this is verse seven, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. Just pause and read carefully what was said there. An angel shows up and like a beam of light comes down. This sounds a lot like the twilight zone to me. Like what? This is, is this an out-of-body experience? We keep going, verse seven. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm in the twilight zone. Dude, get up. All right. Verse seven, we keep going. And the chains fell off his hands. Just try and imagine the wonderment that Peter's fe- feeling here. Like, what is going on? And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put off your sandals. And in my mind's eye, I can hear Peter be like, dude, calm down. I want to wake these guys up. Let's get out of here. We keep going. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And he didn't know what was being done by the angel. He didn't know it was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And I could understand why. Verse 10, we keep going. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. It was the first automatic sliding door. And they went out along one street and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jews were expecting. And I wonder if you read passages like this. You're like, man, I don't see miracles like this all the time in my life. Like I, I'm glad that happened to Peter. I want to see that happen more often. Can I just tell you, Peter didn't expect this thing to happen either. He was just as confused as you would have been. So just because you don't see God working all the time, it doesn't mean that he's not, right? The other thing it shows us us is this. There is nothing, nothing at all that is a match for God's power, right? There's no secure prison, there's no military might, there's no wicked government, and there's no hardness of heart that is a match for God's strength. And when you see the magnitude of Peter's deliverance, it ought to give you a picture of a really big God that gives you real hope this week. The magnitude of his deliverance shows you a big God that gives you real hope this week. Because here's the thing if God can save Peter out of this situation, he too can save your child or your spouse if he can rescue Peter from a maximum security prison, then whoever it is in your life that has a maximum hardness of heart, God can save them too. And you remember what's happening in Peter's life? If God can continue to use Peter after his expletive-filled denial of Christ, if he can keep using him. You know who he can keep using? You. When you see the magnitude of Peter's deliverance, it shows you a big God that brings you real hope this week. That's why Tozer would say the most important thing about any of us is the thought that comes to our mind when we think about God, because it impacts the hope that you do or don't have every single day of the week. You know, we've looked at this from Peter's perspective. We haven't yet looked at it from the church's perspective of the deliverance. So let's, let's go back. Let's look at Acts 12 Starting in verse 12, and I'm going to grab a quick drink of water here. Verse 12, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and they were praying. They're they're praying through the night, asking presumably that God would deliver Peter. And if if you just put yourself in their shoes, it's, it's the week of Passover, they're probably praying God, as you delivered your people thousands of years ago, please deliver Peter as well. Verse 13, and we knocked at the door of the gateway. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. I love that. Like like you just see see a dispute in the house. Like you made the mess. No, you made the mess. No, you made the mess. No, you made Well, could somebody just clean it up? It's like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Knock knock knock. Back and forth, back and forth. Knock knock knock. Like could somebody just let the dude in before all the guards wake up and come and get him again? We keep reading. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But Peter motions to them with his hand to be silent and he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. <laughs> Don't you see the, the focus of the whole thing? Peter motions, says, look, look how God delivered him. Give him the glory, go tell somebody else the good news and then I'm gonna go tell somebody else the good news. Friends, I wonder this morning as you read this passage, if you would ask yourself, do I pray as a Christian to the God of the Bible? That might seem like a silly question. Like, what else would I pray as, and who else would I pray to? But I do wonder that if our prayers are limited to a new job, or for the rain to stop, or for grandma's knee, or for me to get the house that I want in this crazy market you don't have to be a Christian to pray those prayers. Everybody wants those things. And it's not wrong at all to pray for those things. In fact, I hope you pray for those things because God cares about every single detail of your life. But your view of God should drive a prayer life that it takes the God of the Bible to answer those prayers. I wonder if you wouldn't just turn over to Colossians 1 and see how Paul prayed. If you're... Got the Pew Bible, I think it's page 983. I didn't put it on the screen because I want you to actually turn in your Bible. I love that sound of the church just rustling some pages across. Colossians chapter one. Paul's here in verse nine saying how he, he heard of the faith at the church at Colossae. Here's what he says starting in verse nine. And so from the day we heard We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friend, I, would, I wonder if you just wouldn't open up to Colossians 1, even this afternoon, and just pray for every single person you can think of that prayer. Pray, say, man, God, I pray that, that you would help them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they would bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God. And then you would encourage somebody on the way out. Or you'd text them this week and say, man, I am praying for you that you will bear fruit for the gospel in every good work. Can you imagine what it would be like to get that phone call or that text message or that letter in the mail from somebody in the church saying, man, I'm praying for you, that in every single good work today, you would bear fruit for the gospel. You understand how you, you praying that and then you encouraging, like Peter said to do, can have a massive transformation on somebody else's life? I'm not saying to, to stop praying about jobs or health or kids or, or any of that stuff. Like, do. But pray for more than that. That God would do a great work. You see, a small view of God's deliverance over Peter and of ourselves results in discouragement over the hardness of heart we see all around us. And it also results in a weak faith over our own progress in growing in holiness. Small view of God, really big problem for churches on mission. You've got to see the size of this God. No small context, No small deliverance, third, no small judgment. Verses 20 through 25, let's go back and read them again. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamber, when they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. You see, the the picture we get of Herod here is a gifted leader and a gifted speaker. He's a gifted leader. All these other countries depend on his country for food. Clearly he knows how to run a tight ship and keep things moving in the right direction. And he's a really gifted speaker such that when he shows up, people are saying, the voice of a God and not of a man. We don't really catch the content of what he said, but presumably he's not spewing heretical doctrine. He's not saying like, hey, deny the deity of Christ. He's just speaking and when when he didn't give God the glory for the things that come about, he struck dead. Other historical sources tell us that that he was struck with a, a stomach ailment and was dead within a matter of days. Thus, Luke records, worms ate him and he died. Notice this isn't a sickness that God would send. It's not a war, not a divided kingdom. It's severe. It's no small judgment. It's death. And it's important that we point out that not all sickness and not all business trouble and not all death is a direct result of God judging you. There are examples all over the Bible that tell us that's not all of it. So don't mishear that this morning. But in this case, it was. And it forces us to ask a question of what is the appropriate response to God's judgment? How should I feel about that? What's appropriate. And there's certainly a sorrowful response that somebody didn't give God the glory, that someone tried to take God's glory. And whatever the result of God's judgment, in this case, death, there's a loss of life to be mourned. But there's also a rejoicing that's entirely appropriate in God's judgment, that his name has been vindicated and his glory has been defended. And that just does not sit well with us in 21st century America. I know it doesn't. It just feels a little bit off when I say that, doesn't it? Did you know that the word hallelujah shows up four times in the New Testament? And three of those times that hallelujah shows up in the New Testament, it's in reference to God's judgment? See, I wonder if God isn't trying to correct our own view of how we see his judgment. When we talk about judgment, I think what we really fear is judgment that is wickedly applied or not applied at all. There needs to be judgment and it's not being applied, or there's judgment being wickedly applied, and then we just think that all judgment is bad. But guys, right judgment, righteous judgment, it is glorious. And I actually think everybody here knows this. you don't even need to be a Christian to recognize this if you have the right authority rendering the right judgment, that's something that we see as glorious. If you you just scroll back a a calendar year, last summer, you think about the, the rioting and the looting and questions of police brutality all over our nation, right? You see this, I think, being illustrated really well. When the rioters and the looters are going crazy throughout various cities, what do a massive subset of the population say? They say, we need the right authority to render the right judgment on these anarchists and that will be glorious when the right judgment is laid down. Right? And you've got another huge subset of the population saying, well, the right authority has not rendered the right judgment and so we need somebody to rise up and, have, and they become the right authority and they render the right judgment. And we celebrate that. So I'm not condoning anything that did or didn't happen there. Don't don't hear that. I'm just pointing out that the right authority rendering the right judgment is something that everybody sees as a good thing. And then so the question then is how big is your God? Is your God big enough to be trusted as the right authority to render the right judgment? See, it all comes back to that. This God of the Bible who created the entire universe and everything in it he is always the right authority and he always renders right judgments and his glory will be vindicated. Isaiah 42, eight, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Friends, what this means is that you are not the master of your fate. You're not the commander of your soul. You will bow to King Jesus. I will bow to King Jesus. Jesus. Every human who has ever lived will bow to King Jesus. It's just a matter of this. Will you bow to him now as your savior or will you bow to him later as your judge? It's one or the other for every single one of us. And bowing to him now as savior, it will cost you something. You do have to give up your life to follow him, to repent of your sins. The Bible uses the word repentance. which means to turn. I was facing this way following myself. I'm gonna repent and I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna follow Jesus now. I'm gonna bow to him as my savior and I'm going to forsake everything else to pursue him. I think that sounds like a high cost. Like, I don't know if I can do that. Can I go back to what we said at the beginning? Say, friend, don't be the fool on the beach, hunkered down in the hut, saying, I could just wait this one out. This hurricane's not gonna touch me. Don't respond to the God of the universe that way. Today, you still have time. Bow to him. He is the king. There might be some of you here, though, you're thinking, "Just I'm at church in the middle of July, or maybe I'm even on vacation streaming church. Like, this is not the message for me can I just pause you in coming to that conclusion for a second? Can I remind you of God's words in Deuteronomy 8 that render a strict warning for every single person here? Because it's easy to think that message of bow to Jesus now is reserved for somebody else, when maybe we need to hear it and you need to hear it, and you think you've bowed and maybe you haven't. Deuteronomy 8, look on the screen. Is God writing to the Israelite people And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. See, these are words written to the Israelites, and it seems that some of them were grateful for the deliverance that God had made available, for the good houses that He'd given, and for the, the multiplication of wealth that He'd given but they weren't really the people of God. Friend, I wonder this morning, are you a cultural Christian? And by that, I mean not a real one. Does your life have a place for religious observance to come to church, help out on occasion? Maybe you're gonna be at fast track to toss some money in the, in the plate or in the box in the back. But at the end of the day, at your core, you are serving and worshiping other gods. Do you serve and worship your career? Do you serve and worship your kids and their academic or artistic or athletic success? And that is your God and you'll give anything for it? Do you serve and worship financial security? That once I obtain that, then I'll have it. Jesus in Matthew 7 said his disciples would be known by their fruits. I wonder if the fruit of your life was examined, how you would match up to Deuteronomy 8 and what was just said there. Friend, have you actually bowed to King Jesus? Or do you just tip your cap on the way by for your religious service? A small view of God results in failing to take his judgment seriously, and you risk losing your life. Friends, don't have a small view of God's judgment. Everyone will bow to King Jesus. And maybe this God seems big and a little bit scary to you. Maybe this passage leads you to feel a little bit afraid, like, ah, who is this God? And guys, in in many ways, that's exactly what this passage is meant to do. But it's not all judgment and suffering and fear. You see, the judgment that Herod faced, death for failing to bow before God, that judgment was absorbed by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. You see, Jesus isn't just the king, he's a good king. He's not just dishing out judgment because he loves to. No, his heart at the deepest is to extend mercy and to save people and to deliver them. In his goodness, he took the judgment that was coming for all of us. He absorbed God's wrath so that you could have a deliverance that's way better than Peter's. That's good news. You see, the deliverance of Peter shows you a God that's big enough to break down any apparent barrier to the advance of the gospel. The deliverance of Peter shows you a God big enough to break apart the shackles of sin in your own heart. It's not depending on you. It's depending on him, friend. I wonder: is your God too small? Are your eyes stuck on the people around you that don't believe? Are they your eyes stuck on yourself and why you're not making the progress you want in your Christian life? Thinking if you try harder or do this or do that, it'll all get worked out. No, raise your eyes. As we close, we get close to communion here. Can I just invite you to repent of your small views of God? At communion, when we take a few minutes here, in just a second, I want you to to take that bread and that juice and I want you to, to think on and reflect over the magnitude of the God of the universe who's coming to judge the living and the dead, that none of us can escape that. Reflect on how big he is. But also reflect on the majesty of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you. Reflect on him not being just the king, but a good king. And maybe it feels a little bit scary to think about is this God coming for me? Is his wrath still coming for me? Is he going to judge me? Could maybe just conclude with the words from Mr. Beaver. In the famous Chronicles of Narnia, what did he say? He said, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. Father, we want to see you high and lifted up, the king in all of his beauty. We confess that so often, we walk around with small, easy-button, domesticated views of you. We just need you to reorient our eyes to see you as you truly are. God, I pray right now, even as every single person here is listening and thinking on these things, as Satan wants to distract them and make them think about lunch, or whether it's raining or anything else foolish like that, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us open hearts to hear from you what you have to say to help us to see how big your deliverance is and how big your judgment is, that we would respond in repentance and faith and run to you for deliverance and for cover from your judgment. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.